Hey, this is Kate. Welcome to Two Pastors Take a Walk, Take a Run, and Make a Podcast. There you go. This is Yolando, and as always, we're talking about what is astonishing us, what we're thinking about, and what we're preaching. I am really happy that we ran today because I really, really, really didn't want to. And this is not what I'm astonished about, but one of the reasons that I find it valuable to run is it is so important for me to keep coming up the truth that the things I don't want to do are often the things that are most valuable once I've done them. And it's just really important for me to realize that if I'm seeking pleasure in every moment of my day, and as an adult with a certain amount of autonomy and wealth, it is possible to seek your own pleasure in almost every moment of the day, but you end up in miserable because you don't do the things that are actually nourishing. Yeah. End of sermon. I'm just really well, happy. We, we ran that, badly, but we did run. And that it is a spiritual discipline to lean into the things you don't want to do. Well, there's some things that are uncomfortable are just deeply beneficial. So and faithful. Yes. Anyway, so we ran today. Yeah. <laughs> we're we're gonna have to. We can't be these people. Who talk about it all the time. It's both super embarrassing and lame. We just and congratulate boring. ourselves all the time. Right. Basically, we're not talking about Jesus anymore. We're just going to talk about ourselves as really crappy amateur runners. Really crappy. Okay. Anyway, we. What's astonishing you? Well, you know, you have those uh, times in ministry in which you sense the Lord moving, doing something, and you are keenly aware that it is not you making it happen. Mm -hmm. Well, we had one of those um, times on Sunday, this past Sunday, during worship, after uh, the sermon, during the prayer time. Part of the sermon, well, the sermon was about um, uh, the text where Jesus walks on the water to the disciples in their storm-tossed boat, and then Peter says, Lord, if it's you, tell me to come to you. And the Lord says, come, and Jesus, or Peter, gets out of the boat, and walks on the water for a time. And so in that part of the sermon, you know, I said, basically what is happening is that Peter is praying. He is asking the Lord for something big. Oh, that's nice. It's a prayer. If it's you, tell me to do this, right? Yeah. And he waits until he gets a word from Jesus. And then he steps out in faith. Mm -hmm. So that, you know, we just acknowledge that there are many people in our church family that have good ideas, but not everyone is a God idea. And so we need to ask mm -hmm. big, wait to hear, and then step. And we still might sink. And we still, no, we will sink. That was the next part of the sermon. Everyone's faith will falter, mm -hmm. but we know who to call. Well, after the sermon, I just gave the congregation about a minute uh, while the musicians played to think about a big ask. Mm -hmm. for the life of our church family. And then I just walk through the congregation asking people, okay, what's your big ask of Jesus today? Oh my today? gosh, that's so good. Right, and, um, and I mean, that's all from the Lord. And the responses were phenomenal. Um, and, I, and, and clearly, I could sense 
just the Lord moving in the room and the congregation having a, we think the Lord is here <laughs> moment. Yeah. Um, one big ask was, we want to be, Jesus, can we be the, capital T-H-E, multi-ethnic example in this community? Mm -hmm. uh, one big ask was, Jesus, can we be a church where the gifts of the Spirit are fully made manifest? Right? Oh my That's gosh. That's huge. Right? So, and, and one of the elders, unknown to me, because I was just going through the congregation, uh, say, hey, give me your ask, and then repeating them so everyone could hear, because I had the microphone. And uh, so there was an elder who was writing all of them down. Oh my gosh. I yes. am so... <laughs> Full of hatred and jealousy for you right now. <laughs> well, and she sent them to me. It's oh so my gosh, sweet and that wonderful. That is so good. And I read through them several times. And when you put them all together, basically we asked Jesus to move in our church family for the sake of our community. When you when we put that them all together. so good. Yes. And uh, again, it's a God thing because the two ruts that a small congregation like ours can very easily fall into is on the one hand, there is the rut of looking for the next Christian fad. What's mm -hmm. the next purpose-driven mm -hmm. life? What's the next thing? What we can... is the Christian marketplace selling me yes. that I need? Is there some box we can open and implement yeah. the thing yep. to make our church flower? Yep. Yep. Okay, yep. that's yep. one rut. The other rut is, a mindset that says we're just a small church and let's just kind of, yeah, let's just kind of endure yep. this time and try to keep the lights on. Yep. And in that moment in worship, there was a sense of, wait, if if we're worshiping a Jesus mm -hmm. who walks on water, what might be possible here? <laughs> what might Jesus yeah. want to no, do? No, I mean, I, like that is everything. Well, and I'm. That is everything because if people are beginning to long for the manifestation of the power of the Holy Spirit in their community, that is transformative, Absolutely. right? Absolutely. And I mm -hmm. think the problem is for so many of us in our churches, we we think that our churches need what institutions in the world need. We think they need amount of certain amount of money, a certain amount of people, a certain amount of political power and authority. And to the extent that we have those things, we feel like we can do something that would matter in the kingdom of God. And so even when we pray, we don't pray for our ministry. We pray for more people, more money, more power so that Mm -hmm. We can. And, and so it just betrays this idea that if we look at the gospel and not at all the churches around us, but if we look at Jesus as witness to in the gospel, then we see like, well, wait a minute, we don't need anything except Jesus. The, except what we have. Mm. And all of these other institutions that are doing things that we rightly judge as good and faithful, but all of these other institutions were at one time just a small group of people who came together and offered what they had to God, entrusted it to the power of the Holy Spirit, and it was multiplied. And honestly, so many of the big institutions that we look at, and, and we were talking today on the run, like, you know, just sometimes when different 
ministries and different churches get highlighted. And so much what if what gets highlighted is look what look how much money this church gave to do something. And and people quite sincerely start feeling like, gosh, I wish I was rich because then I could be a good Christian, right? Like I wish I was rich because then I could follow Jesus in a way that really mattered. And it's fine. It is fine and expected for cultural reporters to look at a church and notice things. I mean, you know, the the culture is going to notice and celebrate the values that it shares with the church, right? So, and that's fine. Like, I don't expect um, a, a secular news organization to accurately report the spiritual power of a congregation, but I expect churches to understand it, right? Like, I expect for us to understand that it's not bad to be wealthy, it's not bad to have powerful people in your congregation, but it is not necessary to have those things yes. in order to be faithful, in order to be transformative. Transformative, And if the purpose of our communities of faith are to glorify God, then we glorify God better when we allow God to call us to do stupid big things and and God is able to give us abilities that are beyond, beyond our us. resources, beyond expectations. And then people have to look at that and go, well, that must be God because those fools <laughs> didn't have anything That's that it right. took to That's do that right. what matters, right? And so it's great that there are churches with great resources that do great things. But when the culture looks at those churches, what they see is, oh, well, those are some good rich people, Mm -hmm. right? Which is great. That's not bad. They're not shaming the gospel, but people won't necessarily see Jesus in that. And so what we need to understand is that our poverty, our size is not something we need to get over. It's something that we need to leverage for the sake of the kingdom. And to be able to gather a bunch of people in a sanctuary and have people say like, wait, actually, we don't believe in the power of money and we don't believe in the power of government. We believe in the power of Jesus. And so we need to make a big ask and get called out on the water. That's how we learn. Not one person made their big ask money. Not a I mean, person. I love it. I love it. Because we were saying on Sunday, I mean, and it was inspired by your question because we did Elijah and multiplying the widow's oil. And we were talking about starting with that question of like, do we believe that this happened? Do you believe that this happened? And what does it mean if you don't believe that God moved or moves in what we would call supernatural ways, right? And if you don't believe it, then what that means is you are always going to believe that God is limited to human possibilities, right? You're going to believe that the generosity of God is limited to by the generosity of people who have resources. And you're going to believe that the power of God is limited by the power of governments and human authorities, right? So if you don't believe in the supernatural, then you are going to shrink down the gospel to accommodate cultural norms and values, right? And you will have a wrong view of Jesus. When I was just saying in that sermon, I was like, if we don't believe in the supernatural, then we should go to brunch. I love we it when you say brunch. that. Um, because as I was preparing, there's no point in us being here if we don't believe in this. As I was preparing to preach uh, last week, our friend uh, Albert Moses called me and said, I got a story for you. I said, give it to me. 
He said, did you know that the actor Charlie Chaplin once entered a Charlie Chaplin lookalike contest <laughs> and, lost. and lost? That's awesome. Right? That is not a true story. What? It's a true story. I don't believe it. He, and he actually came in second. And I just took that and said, you know, church, think about it. Those who were judging could not tell the real thing from an imposter. Mm -hmm. And there are many people who just have a Jesus that's not the Jesus of the Bible. They have a Jesus that's a good moral example who gives good spiritual yep. teaching, but not, not the supernatural Jesus who walks on water because they yep. don't think they need that Jesus. Well, and I also just think for us as churches, we need to ask ourselves the question, is our deepest desire to be a good and faithful church or is our deepest desire to look like is our deepest desire to look like a good and faithful church because that's not going to be the same thing yeah. given i mean any human culture it's not going to be the same thing because a a good and faithful church as i understand it often will not look good mm. to the culture right mm. it's going to be prophetically calling out powers and principalities and structures that the culture celebrates. It's going to be encouraging relationships that the culture thinks are scandalous or dangerous. It's going to be encouraging a set of values that will cause people to order their lives in a way that they won't be such effective members in a consumer culture, right? I mean, so so to be a good and faithful church and to be called a good and faithful church by the dominant culture is two different things. And we need to decide which one we really want and to recognize if you want to be a good and faithful church, it's going to cost something. And probably it's going to cost, at least among your contemporaries, respect. Yes. And like people will look back 40 years later and be like, oh, that was a prophetic church. But in the time, people are going to be like, you know, that's a dangerous church or that's a disgusting church or that's an, I mean, whatever. So listen, I'm pretty fired up today. <laughs> it's not, this could be bad. So what is astonishing you? Um, so on it, Sunday, what? I was going to say, if it's what I'm thinking about, I'm so excited, but it's probably not because you started on Sunday. So anyway, continue, continue. No, that's coming. Unless I have common sense and decide not to talk about it on this podcast. Um... So on Sunday, during our second hour, um, we did a gathering for adults and we called it, this book changed my life. And we invited people to bring a book that had been pivotal for them in some way. It's a great idea. I mean, I thought it was good because... Was that your idea? I mean, it's a God thing, right? <laughs> um... But I think you said it first. Know, you can't make ahead. the fake no, vomit no, sign. Ahead, um, I just think it's a it's a baby step to testimony, right? Mm -hmm. Like because not everyone yet. I don't think that we at the Grove have yet created a culture where people can know how to stand up and articulate their faith in a way that feels um, not contrived or mm, anyway, whatever. That's good, that's and I, good. I just want people to be able to have real conversations about who they are with one another in the body of Christ. And people can, I mean, I, I hate it when people describe other people or like celebrities, they'll be like, well, she's just so real. And I'm like, we all understand that there's no such thing as a, as a not real person. Like we're all real, <laughs> right? 
That's good. But I, I like do that. understand that I I want what I think what people are trying to say is this person showed up and was authentic. Authentic, yes. Right. And a lot of that, some of that has to do with the individual, but some of it has to do with the space and the place that you create yes. that make people feel like yes. they can be authentic and they don't have to posture in a certain way or hide certain parts of themselves. And honestly, in our culture right now, I think it's really, it's really okay to be angry. It's really okay to be cynical. It's really okay to be passionate about what you are against, but it is really scary to be to be passionately for something like it's really scary to just be sincerely vulnerably, um, you know, say what you're for say what you believe in. And we kind of mock that and don't take that risk. So this was kind of a, a baby step to creating a culture of testimony and creating a space where people know that at the Grove, there are people who are interested in really, knowing who I am and I can be really sincere um, and share some things that are sacred to me, go figure. Um, and so that that idea of starting with this book changed my life and we're trying to make it really clear that it doesn't have to be, I mean, it does not necessarily have to be a spiritual um, book, but you know, a book that was a part of who you are. And I mean, who you, who you are, matters to us, whether or not you understand yourself in categories of a Jesus follower or not. But, um, and the one rule was you can't bring the Bible. Like we'll all just concede that the Bible has changed all of us. So what, you know, what else? And I think, um, I think we'll probably do it again because it was a way that people really were able to open up to themselves. But I think if we do it again, when we do it again, the next time we'll probably do like this song changed my life or this movie changed my life just ways. Cause not everybody's a reader and that's okay. Um, but this Sunday, um, we, we did that and it was really, I mean, it was really cool just to see what people brought and to see the stories they told. Um, but the moment that just, um, really just moved me so deeply is, um, so there's a a man in my congregation, um, named, Don Smith, and I'm going to use his name because this is a a story. I'm talking good about him behind his back. Um, And he is a white man, and he is married to a black woman, um, also good friend, Pastor Barbara Smith. And, um, you know, Don is just, he's an encourager, and he's a worshiper, and he comes out of a charismatic Christian tradition, and just, um, it's just been a real blessing to know him. And so he was in the room and he didn't say much and people were sharing books, um, that had, that had brought them a lot of joy, like had, you know, maybe, you know, this, I thought God was this. And then I read this book and realized, you know, and he said, well, I'm going in a different direction because I'm going to share a book that just messed me up. It just messed me up and it, and it broke me and it made me so mad. And he said, you know, the book that changed my life was white fragility by Robin D'Angelo. I think her name is, that's not her last name. Um, and, um, and what he said is, um, I need to be a safe place for my wife, um, who is black. And so That's I awesome. need to understand what racism is. I need to, um, understand that it's part of me and I need to be aware of that and not defensive about it. And he was just articulating some of the, 
um, you know, core principles of the book, which is good if anybody hasn't read it. But the core principle being that most white people don't want to talk about white supremacy and racism because we understand it as like, well, bad people are racists and good people aren't racist. And, and I'm so, a good person. and I'm a good person. And so if you show me anything about your life or your experience or my behavior that is painful to you, um, and in because of your race, then you're accusing me of racism. You're accusing me of be, being a bad person. I can't even contemplate the fact that I'm a bad person. Therefore, I need to shut you down. Yeah. And you, just person of color, need to get over it because you can't challenge my self understanding of my own acceptableness. And just, you know, Don was saying, I more than I want to think that I'm a good person, I want our marriage to be a safe place for my wife who is black. And so reading this book, you know, broke my heart, but changed me because it allows me to see the truth. And I want to know the truth. And I just, I mean, I was so, um, just moved by his love for Barb and also just thinking that's why I want every white person in the church to read books like White Fragility, like The New Jim Crow, like Watch the 13th, because it's not just that we want to be a safe place for the black people we happen to love, but we want this community to be an authentic, holy, and healthy, multi-ethnic community, which means we as white people want to say, want to say, show me a truth, even if it breaks my heart, because I want to be part of creating a safe place for my brothers and sisters who are people of color and um and that matters to me more than my own comfort more than my own pleasure I want to do this work and I just um was so um in awe Mm. um of just the beauty of this man and his love for his wife and how that's such a an incredible witness to all of us as the congregation to say it should not be limited to personal familial relationships that we would have that kind of an emphasis uh, um, uh, that have that kind of a um, motivation to do that work but that you know to say my brother or my sister shows up in my life as Jesus so if I love Jesus I want to do that kind of work of confronting my own sin, my own brokenness, even when that messes with my comfort and my understanding of who I am. So, and what he did was deeply Christian. It was so. What? It was so it faithful. Is, it is to encounter truth mm-hmm. that causes one to see self in an unfavorable light, mm-hmm. and then to turn and repent. Yes, and not be, and he and then what I love about it is. Like Paul, he's not ashamed to say, this is who I was. Because I'm not out here hustling, trying to convince everyone that I'm a good person. I'm out here because the most precious thing in my life is the life of Jesus. And it is available to me and it is available to anyone. And I don't care if people think I'm garbage. In fact, I'll glory in my weakness and my brokenness because it it magnifies the Lord. And that's what I'm about, not self-image but the God image in me. Anyway, I love Don Smith. I love that moment. I I, I love that. And I think that is a lesson for both white Christians on the left and on the right. Absolutely. For on the left, white Christians tend to use their uh, woke status as kind of a... um, 
an ethnic racial Phariseeism mm -hmm. to say, look, look how holier I am than the rest mm -hmm. of these, you know, conservative folk who don't get racism. And then those on the right are so busy defending their goodness or to say mm -hmm. racism doesn't exist. That was back then that they won't let that enter into their world, a book like that. Well, and I will say this to my fellow leftist progressive Christians, white people, is that so often people are willing to read the book, go to the lecture, but don't have any relationships with people of color that are not like economic, that are not transactional, right? So you do not have any black friends. And like you would then look down at conservative people who won't read White Fragility but say my best friend is black and you will because you've read the book call out all of the problems with that way of thinking, mm -hmm. fair enough. But I would just say to turn it back and say, okay, but if you don't have any friends who aren't white, then you also need to be willing to ask the hard questions about my about yourself is to say, if I believe all the things I say I believe in and have all the values that I say that I have, then why does my life, why do I live a segregated life? Mm. And why am I blaming the president or the culture or the Republicans for things that are actually within my control? Like, especially progressive white people of a certain economic level, you have, you could make a black friend if you wanted yeah, to. Yeah, well, a lot of um, white liberal people are, <laughs> I compare them to the characters on that show um, back in the 80s and 90s, Friends. <laughs> they're, they're, they're pretty nice, but though that, that show took place okay. in one the of the most multicultural cities in the world, and they didn't have any black hey, friends hey, hey, until hey, the I, last season. Until the last season when Ross started dating Charlie. No, but here's the thing. The the white people on Friends, I mean, you liked them. No, I didn't the watch show. the show, by okay. the way. Well, I'm just saying they were terrible people. Like, oh, they well, were see. terrible people. I mean, they were all terrible, self-absorbed people. And I'm not saying I didn't... I did watch the show, and I did like the characters, but then you look back at, like, the choices they're making and just being like, this is not... Like, none of this is actually cute. Like, not that they're not, whatever. I mean, people are more than the worst things they've ever done, and every life has redeeming value, and it's okay to love people. I'm just saying, like, it's also important to look back and go, you know, th this is these aren't lives. Because the whole premise of this show is, like, they're friends, look how they love one another, and so then we're right to go, oh, how did we not notice yeah. that they only loved people who were just like them, yeah. which is like the problem with the body of Christ writ large. That's my point. Yes. That's my no, point. No, your, your, yes. your point is very well taken by me, friend. Right. And I mean, in case anybody recently, the code switch podcast, which is really good. They did an episode on how, um, Barna or somebody did a poll and, Americans, less than 1% of Americans have even one relationship outside of their friendship, outside of their racial group. So like white people are the worst, but black people are not far behind and other races are not far behind. So the reality is it's just a human instinct that we seek relationships. We had a elders retreat this past Saturday mm -hmm. and the question came up as a great question. Why? Would anyone come to our congregation? 
What makes us so special? Why, why would anyone come here? And people went around the room and then I said, wait, we're forgetting something that's huge. We are the only multi-ethnic congregation in this area. And we're on a pretty uh, major street. There are one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, about seven churches. I mean, mm -hmm. we're kind of on a, a, a church row kind mm -hmm. of street. Mm -hmm. And we're the only multi-ethnic congregation. And eyes got really big. Mm -hmm. Like, oh, that's right. This is a thing that you don't see a lot. Right, because, and the reason why it matters, because I can hear people who would never listen to our podcast anyway, but I can hear people like rolling their eyes and being like, blah, 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 diversity. That's, you know, a buzzword or whatever. No, it matters because racism and tribalism are anti-Jesus and anti-gospel and churches that are intentional about facing that and forming the beloved community are churches that are being faithful to the gospel Absolutely. and witnessing against the culture. Absolutely. And that matters because people who are seeking Jesus now are seeking Jesus. Anybody who's yep. looking for a good church has already found it. Let me just be clear. So anybody else who is seeking Christian community is seeking a spiritual relationship with the Lord. And so then is going to be looking for a community that is different than the culture. And, and you can't read the New Testament without encountering the early churches wrestling with ethnicity well, from Jesus taking the um, now disciples listen, friend, into Samaria. You can't read it right without encountering that. But what plenty did I of, say? No, no, oh, no. You oh, said yes, you, can't you can't read that's it. Right. You can't. Of course you can. Absolutely. So do You're right. mm -hmm. uh, insert famous preacher on TV's name right now. But you can't read it accurately. Yes. I mean, that stuff has been deliberately hidden mm -hmm. in order to make the gospel compatible with an upwardly mobile capitalist lifestyle. And it's there all over it's everywhere. the text. And it's not just in the New Testament. It's all over the Hebrew Bible Abraham as well. Abraham was called to be a blessing to the nations. Right. Well, and just, I mean, we were talking on Sunday about, you know, looking at how sinful Israel was in the time of Elisha and saying the reason that Israel was so sinful was because of the way they treated who? Widows, orphans, and who? Aliens. And what mm -hmm. is an alien in Bible words? That is a foreigner. Mm -hmm. And that the covenant made by God and not by people, the God-given covenant on Sinai is remember that your father was a wandering Aramean. Yes. Remember that when you see the foreigner or the stranger in your midst, you're supposed to see your own sacred story. And you're supposed to see, you're supposed to be the people that believe that the whole earth belongs to the Lord. And so if God sends somebody on a journey, who in the absolute hell do we think we are to say that God doesn't own the earth and give people right of movement upon it. I mean, like you can think that, but not if you take the Bible seriously yeah. is all I'm saying. Anyway, we should move on. This is, this is dangerous. This is, this is, um, moving dangerously close to rant territory. But this is the, this is a place where we're both passionate. This is a place that's really important to both of us mm -hmm. as not only as as pastors and christian leaders but as disciples of jesus i mean we're we're just very yeah. mm -hmm. passionate about the subject of ethnicity and being multi-ethnic community right yeah um what are you thinking about i am thinking about um sunday i was driving home um had lunch 
and uh, the little one and I went to Starbucks and we were on our way to go get some ice cream as we do on most Sunday afternoons and that's so nice yeah that's that's our thing we we go to lunch and then um, oh my gosh mom gets he's some gonna alone time grow then... up loving Sundays because he's gonna remember that he spent every Sunday I with hope his so. dad and that's the point the point is Sunday afternoon as a matter of fact I tell the church one o'clock I'm on daddy duty Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, we go to lunch and we go to Starbucks. He I gets mean, chocolate sorry. milk. Can I just interrupt yes. you one more time? Yes. Like, what I think is so lovely about that is that so many children of pastors grow up feeling like super resentful towards the church and towards the Lord because their parents continually had to put them second to meet the expectations of the church that, frankly, come more from the culture than from the gospel. And so I just love that when other PKs come up to Matthew, if they do, and hopefully they won't and say, you know, like, wasn't it your dad was never around or whatever. And he'd be like, no, Sunday was the day that I spent the most time with my dad. And and what that means is that you're teaching Matthew that what's at the center of your faith is not the church, but is the Lord. Right. And so yes. being able to say, I mean, I just think that's so great. Well, and I think and one of the things that really helped me was last year, our, our emphasis was on joy and so I just started asking myself, how can I make this a day of joy mm-hmm. for us? And ice cream is pretty good. <laughs> well, I mean, it, but it, beyond that, like another friend, her daughter has been has been sick and like it's having, been having a hard time to go to school. And and she said, well, you know, I really want you to tough it out in school today. And like, what what treat would you like if you make it through the day? And her daughter said, I want to spend an hour playing games with you. Wow. And I think like that's just so. I mean, this is not a parenting that's podcast, great. but. I, I think like what we're almost hungry for is relationship. Yeah. And I think f- for pastors all the time, it's so hard because we never feel like we're doing enough. And mm-hmm. um, I just, I think it's so wonderful and it gives everybody else in your congregation what I think is a really healthy model of like, there's enough time. Yeah. Like if yeah. we're going to do this, we're going to do it by the power of God. And so the power of God doesn't need me sacrificing my Sunday afternoons with my kid to push it over the top, right? Yeah. Like the power of God is sufficient. And so I'm going to spend this time with my kid and you can spend time with your kids and like what they want is not like, we're so stressed about whether or not they get into Harvard, but really mm. what they want and what they need is the things that we absolutely can give them, which is like stupid dance parties and ice cream and... And after yeah. ice cream, we go home and we play video games. That's really <laughs> So we have That's a great really time. So, um, and another thing we do on the way home, well, we were actually on the way to get ice cream and we call grandma and grandpa, my mm-hmm. parents in Atlanta, and um, we, we talk to them via speakerphone in the car and... Uh, so, um, um, my mom was on the phone and my dad started to shush her, which is rare (laughs) and you, you don't shush, you know, my mother. And so my mother said, wait, hold on a second. I know your father is not shushing me. And, and, and the reason he was, um, you know, shushing was because, um, he was trying to listen to the news story about Kobe Bryant and oh, yeah. those who died in that helicopter yeah. crash. And I hadn't heard it. And so uh, we started talking about that. And so that's really what I'm thinking about. Um, I've had several conversations with people uh, since uh, Sunday. And uh, one of the things that comes to my mind or one of my takeaways is that 
tragedy does not discriminate. Mm -hmm. And there is something, you know, people die every day. I mean, mm -hmm. thousands of people died on yeah. Sunday, and yet we are so blown away by this particular death. And so I've been sitting with that, and it seems to me that one of the reasons why um, th this hits in the culture so hard is because we 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 have this sense that if you are at a certain level of fame, a certain level of wealth, age, that those kinds of things, that, that you're, you're somehow shielded from those things. Mm -hmm. And so when that kind of tragedy happens to a, a wealthy, famous, uh, seemingly having it all together kind of person, it really strikes at our, our subconscious um, knowledge of our own mortality, mm -hmm. right? Because if it happened to them, holy cow can happen to me. So that, that's one takeaway. The other takeaway is that um, several times on television and, and in my conversations with, with people, I've heard that he was larger than life. Mm -hmm. They're like, oh, he was just larger than life. And I've heard that for many, many years, of course, about other people. And it just occurred to me within the past couple of days, oh, wait, no one but Jesus is larger than life. Well, I mean, what I think about that is, is I think, I wish that people would understand, and, and we just live in a, in a celebrity-soaked culture, but I wish that people could understand that everybody is larger than life in their own life, right? Like in your own circle, right? Like just because the world doesn't see you doesn't mean that you don't have the capacity to do build a really beautiful and valuable life, right? Mm -hmm. And so, because what I'm so struck um, in in looking at, at at just how that's covered is a, it's interesting to me to see um, just my my friends who are black and and just how much um, like I I mean white people are sad about it too. I mean white people liked Kobe, but um, I just like what he represents to the African-American community in a particular way and, and just sort of puzzling with, you know, just all the implications of that. But the thing that really touches me, um, is just looking at all of the, lots of people are posting pictures of collages of him with his daughter, um, Gianna, Gigi, mm -hmm. and just, it, it is beautiful to look at the way that he cherished mm. her and like quotes of him talking about how he started watching basketball again with her and, and wow. like stories that people would say like, you need a son to carry on the legacy. And she's like, nah, I got this. And just, I mean, but it's just really beautiful to see the, um, the power in that parenting and how just he seemed to be so fulfilled and mm. content and delighted in his role as a father. Mm. Um, and that's just a really a beautiful testimony. And, and it's, it's lovely. It's lovely to see that. And particularly just sort of thinking historically about how in this country we continue to separate families of mm. color and just what a privilege it is for any of us to get to parent our kids and to say, you know, it would be so wonderful if we could turn out the voices that tell us that, um, 
it is not enough to enjoy our children, that we need to like push them to achieve on a certain level or, you know, it just, I mean, I just think that's what's so, that's so beautiful, um, to me to, to see those pictures. And I'm grateful that that is being amplified. I'm not grateful for his death, but I am grateful that in his death, this beautiful picture of fatherhood in general and black fatherhood in particular, because we all know that this country has a terrible stereotypical racist um, view that black men aren't good fathers. And it's not true. Um, and so I'm grateful that that image is there and that, and that, that image, like not everyone can be a superstar basketball player, but we all have within the power to, um, cherish our children and be tender towards them and to like enjoy what they enjoy just for the sake of spending time with them, that that's just goodness that we can release in the world. And so... Um, was grateful. Yeah, well, that's that's what I'm thinking about. Well, well, I made it all serious. Well, oh, well, and intentional, and I can't, uh, I can't, I can't go back to rant mode. That's not. You absolutely can go back to rant mode. I know. This is everyone should know that Yolando eggs me on, and then he gets to act like the calm, quiet, reasonable one. But like he eggs me on, and. Um, that's what I bring to this friendship, but that's what I'm thinking about. Since you didn't ask, I just want to let you know that, um, at, by, at your request, I read a review of a new book. Um, and the book is called, um, why can't Can we, we be, be friends? friends? And it's written by a, a woman, um, talking about how this Christian culture, um, of, um, men and women avoiding each other in an attempt to bring purity into the Christian community that the subtitle is avoidance isn't purity. And she, the woman, Amy Bird is basically saying, you know, to the extent that we've allowed the Billy Graham rule. And if anybody doesn't know, the Billy Graham rule is the rule that a man will never be alone in a room with a woman, which is very interesting to me, right? The rule isn't that a woman won't be alone in a room with a man. The rule is that a man won't ever be alone in a room with a woman. Um, because, um, his whatever. And so she based this author points out, stop. This author points out that basically these are not, these are not Christian values, um, that avoiding one another and basically teaching Christian men and women that, um, the other gender gender is a threat and is dangerous and needs to be avoided or else pollution, sexual pollution will occur, that this is just anti-gospel. It's anti-gospel. Um, and that, you know, the metaphor for community in the entire Bible is siblinghood. Yeah. Siblinghood. And so we in the body of Christ ought to be helping people recover friendship, like a true, healthy, holy friendship, and that those friendships should occur between women and women and men and men, and also between women and men. And the, and the image is brother and sister, and that's why we call each other. And at the same time, acknowledging that there is a place for boundaries, right? Sure. We acknowledge that. 
But to go to the extreme of saying you can never be alone, alone with someone of the opposite sex, that's just, well, uh, like you said, it's anti-biblical. When you have this theology that we are brothers and sisters. But I mean, it's just, it's so prevalent. And, um, and I think even churches that don't, that would say we're against this, you still, I mean, just in the same way that you do not see people having very many cross, um, you know, multi-ethnic friendships, you also just don't see people modeling healthy and holy, you know, intergender friendships, <laughs> whatever. Well, listen, so there's a, here, here's, here's, there's a theology that says men, you run the show. Mm-hmm. And then that same theology says, men, you are so weak that you can't control yourself. So just don't even be alone with a woman. Well, you're, yeah. you're, you're the stronger vessel, but you're so weak, you can't control yourself. So just don't ever be alone with a woman. Wait, what? Well, it just, um, yeah. I, I, so I was reading <laughs> the review of this book, which I mean, the book, I, I've not read the book. A number one, let me just say. But I mean, we talk about this all the time, that we feel like our our friendship is important to share because, A, we think that we should model for other pastors that it's important yes. to have friends. And when you and I were ordained, mm-hmm. we took a vow that mm-hmm. said that we would be a friend to our colleagues, to our colleagues. in ministry. Didn't say, well, I'll just be a friend to the men. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I, I just, and I think it's hard for us to ever think about seeing people. You know, it's 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 so hard for people to think about seeing someone of the, another gender in a different kind of role if we don't really know people of other genders as people first, right? So that's why just the like ethnicity you were just saying correct. Like that's why the senior pastors of almost every church. I mean in this presbytery of every church and across the country of almost every church, the senior pastor is always a man and the associate pastors are always women. And we're like, nothing to see here, folks. It's just that in every single situation, the man was always more qualified than every single woman. I mean, and I just think part of that is we just have an image in our head of who men are and who women are, and we avoid friendships that would challenge that. So then the most intimate relationships we tend to have with someone of the opposite gender is a sexualized relationship if you're married or a, or a terrible one if you're divorced, right? I mean, but we can't, we can't see how, you know, a, a male um, pastor might be good as an, in an associate role and how, I mean, we just don't, we don't know each other and we don't try to know each other. And I was going to make fun of this review, taking down this book, but I just, I mean, whatever, I shouldn't waste any time talking about what I don't believe in. I should just say, I I think it's really hard. I'm sorry. See, he's egging me on right now and y'all don't even know it. Um, but I'm just saying, I, I'm grateful that the book is written. I'm kind of mad I didn't write it myself, but, um, here's another thing that is important to us, right? Yes, and no, it's very important to us. And I, I think, you know, one of the things that's interesting is that apparently in this book, Amy Bird says, hey, we need to have these relationships between men and women that are friendships that are healthy and holy. Um, and, you know, the counter is, the counter 
argument is can't do it because either the man won't be able to control himself or the woman will falsely accuse the man. So to yes. protect your relationship and to and, protect the women, you and just to protect can't, your rela- or your reputation. Right. I mean, it's yeah. just and and she points out Amy Bird that Jesus risked his reputation to have friendships with women in a time when that was a much more um, you know stigmatizing moment. And you know, it's interesting that the woman reviewing the book, who's actually a local Charlotte woman, says. Um, uh, she says, this is true. Any interaction with women in the first century was potentially suspect. But we can be certain that Jesus conducted himself with wisdom and never put himself or others in the path of temptation. Um, when we engage the other sex, we can do likewise. And I'm like, "Why? no, that's not even... We're saying that Jesus put himself in situations where he could have been falsely accused, where people could have said this has the appearance of unrighteousness. And Jesus said, again, I don't care what it appears. I care what it is. And the idea of saying like, well, Jesus never risked his reputation. I'm sorry. Have you read the gospel? I was going to say the woman at the well, the Samar- <laughs> with the Samaritan woman at the well. He's alone with her. They have this conversation and the disciples come back. And, and they're, they're like, shocked. They're Why like, are you talking what? to her? Why right. are you talking to her? She's a woman and a Samaritan. And has had five husbands. So yeah, doesn't yeah, have this stellar reputation. But I'm just saying like Jesus risked his reputation all the time because yes. he cared yes. more about being faithful to God than looking faithful to religious people. And the majority of people's stigma against relationships between men and women that are healthy and holy is that oh they it won't look right and I'm just saying that as the church if we keep limiting the gospel to what looks right in the eyes of the culture then we should not be surprised that we have nothing to say and last podcast we talked about walking in the way of Jesus mm-hmm. we will not be walking in the way of Jesus if I am endowed by, filled with the spirit of Jesus. I, I want to live like Jesus lived. I want to, I want to, like, what I just want to walk in that way. Right. I mean, I think that the point is you can risk your reputation and that's fine because my sense of self and my sense of peace doesn't come from my reputation. It comes yes. from Jesus. You can risk your position to do Uh, you know, to walk in the way of Jesus. And that's fine because my sense of self, my purpose, my reputation doesn't come from my position. I mean, all the time we just keep, you know, making the gospel smaller and smaller and smaller. So it's not risky. So it's profitable. Mm -hmm. So, and that's just, then we're saying we don't believe in the gospel. We believe in all of the things that we shrink the gospel to accommodate. So, I mean, I think a people who are alive in Christ will have friends. That's just a fruit of the spirit. They'll have friends. They'll have time to have friends because they'll say no to things that the world says you can't say no to in order to make time for friendships. And they'll have friendships with people of both genders because they'll be able to see people as human first and gendered beings second. And I would just say, snarkily, the other huge problem with saying we're just going to avoid one-on-one relationships with people of the other gender. The other huge problem with the Billy Graham rule is the gays. The gays. Here's the problem. You can say, I'm not going to have a one-on-one relationship as a man with another woman, 
But what you don't factor in is that people are gay. And so if you have another one-on-one relationship with another man, you could still get overcome with lust or you could still get falsely accused. I mean, it's just a slippery slope to saying, fearing all intimacy and all human connection. And it's so easy to go there because what you care most about is engaging your purity. And right now you say like, just as long as I protect myself from that kind of human, I'm okay. But the reality is human relationship is inherently risky. Again, see Jesus on the cross, right? And this whole you know, culture of separation by genders just assumes this heteronormative construct that doesn't even exist anymore. Like if you can't be alone in a room with a woman because she might be a Jezebel, then how can you take the risk of being alone in a woman in a room with a man because he might be a closeted gay person? So no one is safe. No one is safe. I mean, it's just, it just makes me crazy. Christian fellowship. Out, out the window. Yeah. It's not, it's when not was, worth it. When I was in seminary, I remember, you know, the first class you have to take is Hebrew. Uh, and so the first week uh, in the summer intensive Hebrew course, uh, I believe the second day, um, th- there's a, a was a woman in front of me, and um, during one of the breaks, because uh, you know you go many hours a day um, in this class, one during one of the breaks, she turned around, and literally here's what she said, uh, and let me just say this is a um, White woman, uh, second career, about was 15, yeah, 15, <laughs> so here's my senior. She turned around during the break and she said, hi, my name is Jeannie. We should be friends. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and my first thought was, okay, crazy white lady, I don't know, <laughs> right? But we became really good friends. Yeah. As a matter of fact, by the time I left seminary, my parents said the best thing you did in Louisville was to make friends with that genie. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I mean, and that friendship is a testimony to what? To the risen Lord, right? Yeah. It's a friendship yeah. that wouldn't yeah. exist except yeah. that Jesus drew you yeah. together. And yeah. it's a really beautiful thing. Yeah. And I, I mean, it's funny because the other thing that this critique of the the book says is like, oh, you can have cross-gendered friendships. You just need to have them as a couple, yes. right? And I just think that's really funny. I mean, I am married to an introvert. If I can only be friends with people as long as my husband is friends with their spouse too, I mean, that's just nutty. Also heteronormative. Also basically says, sorry, single people, you can have friends once you get married. I mean, it's just this whole, the whole supposition that a faithful Christian is going to end up married in a detached single house with children. I mean, that's just not, it just, it's very, it's very frustrating to me, but I just feel the need to coda this and say, you know, it's not that I don't believe in healthy boundaries, right? I, I Absolutely. do. Absolutely. And so I, I'm not saying like, you know, there's those stories about Gandhi, about how like, be, do you know these? I don't no, know. I'm I don't not. mean to cancel Gandhi, but like, basically he was, um, trying to show that he had risen above sexual temptation and purity. And so there are stories that I, I think have been verified that he used to have like young women and sometimes very young women like come and sleep next to him with very little clothing on wow. so that he could prove whatever. I'm just saying like people can go to crazy town by saying that they, by not observing boundaries. And I'm not in favor of that. Like I think that healthy friendships 
between men and women should always include everyone wearing all their clothing and that touching really doesn't need to be happy. I don't need to touch my friends. I don't need to touch you to be your friend. Well, I don't touch already, my female we, friends. You've already, you've, we, we've already established that if we're running <laughs> right. and I have some kind of respiratory Asthma emergency, attack, yes, that I will, I will revive you. Will, you. you will save my little life, but, but our then our friendship's over because <laughs> I just can't get past it. But I'm just saying like, I, I understand and affirm yes. that healthy boundaries need to happen. Yes. I'm not, I'm just saying, and we were saying this before we talked that like, because we know, and I do believe that sex outside of marriage is not God's design for people, but I think, you know, there's, there's a whole wealth of friendship that is possible without any kind of sexual dynamic, but because we don't trust people and because we don't trust the Holy spirit, we become Pharisees and saying, it's not just that you can't have sex outside of marriage. It's that you can't have a friend outside of your marriage of the other gender. And what we, we do that saying, well, I'm just going to put this big border around what's actually prohibited to make sure that nobody ever comes close to crossing the actual line, but that's just, that's pharisaical. That's not what God called us to, and it limits the beauty of the Christian life. And again, so then if if you have any kind of institution in which men are in power, when it comes time to choose more leadership... You're gonna pick your friends. If all your friends are men, you're or all your pick, friends are white. You're, yeah, you're going to pick the people you're you You're going to pick the good people that yeah. you know who are going to be the people who look yeah. just like you. Okay, this has been a really long, long podcast. We need to stop. What are you preaching about? I am preaching about... I, well, we're starting a new series, and um, I think we're going to call it Unstoppable. Mm-hmm. And we're going it, to... It's looking at the first few exorcism and healing stories in the Gospel of Mark. And at the beginning of the Gospel of Mark, you know, after Jesus is um, filled with the Spirit, after his temptation uh, in the wilderness, he begins to announce the kingdom. And then there are these encounters with um, demon-possessed people and sick people. And uh, the first one, uh, Jesus goes to the synagogue and he is teaching with authority, Mm -hmm. right? And this demon-possessed man starts Screaming out, mm-hmm. we know who you are, Jesus. And uh, unlike exorcisms of the day when, you know, you had all kinds of incantations and it was a big deal, Jesus Jesus just says, be quiet, come out of him. And the people in the synagogue are blown out of their minds, uh-huh. astonished. And so um, I think, I think, I think, emphasis on think, uh, both the sermon on Sunday and, and, and this whole series is just about the unstoppable uh, nature, power um, of, of, of this king, this kingdom. I'm not exactly sure where we're going to go on Sunday, but that's kind of what's, what's in my head. It's just Tuesday. That's good. That's good. Um, well, we are in the last Sunday of our worship series on our guiding principles because we have five. Um, and this one is we seek to be led by the Holy Spirit. And um, I talk a lot of smack. <laughs> Sometimes it comes back. What? Sometimes it comes back to bite me. Um, as a general rule, A, I love to preach. I don't ever want to not be in the pulpit. So that's a problem. And then B, I um, <laughs> talk a lot of trash. So 
At times, pastors, instead of preaching in certain places, will interview people. Yes. And I have been on the record of saying I think that's lame. Um, so unfortunately, You're this, do that Sunday, this Sunday, yeah, because I think it is a good idea. Um, but we have um, four members of our congregation who are going to share in sort of a guided conversation um, particular ways that they followed the Holy Spirit, both to places that they wouldn't have chosen for themselves, and and in one case, to stay in a place that they didn't want to be, and sort of guiding the conversation between like how that ways that that was hard and ways that it was unexpected and ways that it was um, sacrificial. But then, and this is the really important part, um, also, you know, creating space for them to tell the end of that story about how they're being led, doing the hard work of allowing themselves to be led by the Holy Spirit, even when that felt really uncomfortable and, and scary and uncertain, you know, created a space where they experienced um, just a, a joy and an abundance and a blessing that they could not have gotten otherwise. And all of these people have been really foundational in creating the grove. Um, and so one of the things that I want the community to see is that we exist because of the faithfulness of other people. And so then that our faithfulness and our willingness to allow the Holy Spirit to lead us into uncomfortable places and to lead us beyond our own wisdom, that what we do now is, is for our own sake, but also for the sake of those that we don't know That's and good. that we haven't met, right? So I, I'm, I'm excited about doing that. Um, I'm, I, it was funny. I was talking about it to another friend and they were like, rah, rah, didn't you say you hate that? And I was like, oh gosh, I really need to talk less because <laughs> who has all these opinions and talks about them all the time. So yes, um, I don't love it and yet I'm doing it and it feels really risky, but I, I mean, I think it's really faithful. It may or may not work, but that it is sounds the great. life of faith. Sounds well, great. Um, we'll see. Are you going to put a sofa on the platform or some chairs? <laughs> That's and... right. A coffee no, mug. That, that, that was a serious. <laughs> no, I don't that. know what I'm doing. I don't know how. I don't know how we're going to logistically arrange the space. Obviously, I know I need people to be able to be comfortable. Sure. Um, and so probably seated. Yes, I don't know. This, no one cares about this anyway. That's what's happening. I'll let you know next week uh, if it was a, um, a cluster or not. But I think no matter what, I, I think the people who are sharing their testimonies are just people that I just deeply, deeply admire and am blessed by and have been inspired by. Um, and I think it's important as a, as a church that we learn how to share testimonies that like Absolutely. holy things are happening in our lives right now. And so I want people to recognize it in scripture and I want people to be able to see, you know, where God is on sort of the, the global stage on the national stage. But I also want us to have eyes to see how the same Holy spirit that, that created the universe is deeply and intimately involved in, in every one of our lives. That's right. That's good. And so that, I, I think no matter what, that will be a, a good moment. So yeah. that's what's happening. So thank you for listening to our very, very long podcast. If you think it's too long, you can blame our mutual friend, Elizabeth Hallbridges, who told us, well, your podcast is fine. Just keep talking. People can turn you off if they don't want to listen. Um, if you want to find out more about um, Derida Church, you should Google Derida Presbyterian Church, and it will pop you right over to their website. If you want to learn more about The Grove, it's thegrovecharlotte.org. 
Um, if you want to hear some of Yolando's sermons, which I recommend, you should go to the Podbean website and search for Derida Church Podcast. And if you want to hear some of the sermons from The Grove, go to iTunes and search um, The Grove Charlotte, I think. The Grove Charlotte. The Grove Charlotte. That's what it is. And um, the sermons will pop up. And we are grateful to you all for listening so that we have an excuse to have this conversation. And we will talk at you next week. 